From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major of the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Today on the program, we welcome back Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. He does a lot of work with the cold-blooded creatures here in Mississippi, including the 30 different species of salamander. Last time he was here, he was literally helping the salamanders cross the road with this bucket brigade. So we'll get an update on those efforts. As always, we additionally want to hear from you about your wildlife experiences. And Dr. Major's back, so if you have a pet question, you can call that in as well. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or email the show animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Today on the program, we welcome back Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. He does a lot of work with the cold-blooded creatures here in Mississippi, including the 30 different species of salamander. Last time he was here, he was literally helping those salamanders cross the road with his bucket brigade. So through this hour, we'll get an update on those efforts. And as always, we want to hear from you about your wildlife experiences. And Dr. Major is back with us. So if you have a pet question, you can call that in as well. To join the conversation, it's a simple phone call, one eight seven seven mpb ring The number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well. Good, good morning. morning. So, Dr. Major, you're back, and uh, I know that you were telling us a little bit about your trip. Uh, and if you don't, you know, don't give, if you could give us maybe the Reader's Digest version, but it was literally a trip around the world, sounds like. It was, and it was uh, started out in Peru, uh, Cusco, Machu Picchu, uh, progressed on to Easter Island, uh, quite a few different places, and it was great. It, uh, actually, the animal part of it, uh, Serengeti, uh, uh, park there, or Serengeti, Serengeti in Tanzania was very, uh, very good, very informative. We got some great pictures and uh, saw just about everything except the wild dogs and rhino. Uh, also in Nepal, there was a uh, game park that, uh, or preserve, that featured a tremendous number of one-horned Asiatic uh, rhino. So it was good, uh, tiring, but uh, it's very good. Well, we are certainly glad to have you back. And again, so if you have a pet question, uh, you can give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So, Libby, uh, you had some fun, uh, I think, yesterday in Tupelo. Oh, I did. Yeah. Oh, you've been you've been checking up <laughs> on me. Yes, we had a big crowd. Almost a hundred people, I think, turned out to see Dr. Kathy Shropshire, who's talked to on on this radio a number of times, uh, become Miss Cook in her one woman play. And then we talked about the new um, biography about Miss Cook and had a real good time. 
And again, if folks have not listened before, it's always good to remind people who Fannie Cook is. Well, Fannie Cook was an early scientist and conservationist in Mississippi, born back in the 1800s, 1889 she was born, and uh, she just did some great things for Mississippi. She started the Game and Fish Commission and wrote the first game laws and started the Museum of Natural Science. She was in on the preservation of Horn Island and the Barrier Islands. She... uh, Oh, help start the uh, Mississippi Ornithological Society in the Academy of Science. She went and worked in Washington, D.C. for a while and worked at the Smithsonian and learned about all these things that we weren't doing down here and <laughs> brought it all home. So um, anyway, it's it's been fun learning about her in a book. She she also had lots of outdoor adventures, so that's, that's a fun part of the book. All right. And uh, last week we had uh, Nicole Smith, who's the special events mm-hmm. coordinator at the museum. We talked about a couple of things going on. Uh, any updates or reminders for us? Okay. The, the exhibit, I think we barely had time to mention, Conservation Quest. Mm-hmm. It's a new exhibit at the Science Museum. You know, they get a new traveling exhibit twice a year. So this is the um, new one, and it's uh, being installed right now. It will be open this Saturday, Saturday the 27th of January. Uh, 9 o'clock, the doors open, 9 to 5. I don't know a whole lot about it because I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to go, I'm going to get to go see it tomorrow, a sneak peek. But um, it's about how to be better at conserving natural resources. So I'm sure it'll be a fun thing, and it's supposed to be geared to a lot of things that families can learn to do together. Tom, I heard a rumor that you were helping unload it. Did, yes, you, did you get to see anything that's in the exhibit? You couldn't tell what it was. We un- it was boxed. We unloaded it. Uh, whatever day that was, it's being assembled now. They were looking for strong backs that day. Yes. I, think. They, I, they I happened need, to be they, there. Yeah, it was, they needed some. Yeah. Was, yeah. Every now and then, all the PhDs and the, it doesn't matter what your degree is, everybody gets together and unloads the new exhibit or loads the old one, right? It's exercise day. Yes. Uh, As I mentioned, our guest is uh, from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, Tom Mann. Tom's been on the program a number of times. So, Tom, thanks for joining us again. You're welcome. Uh, And as I mentioned, the opener, uh, one of the interesting things that you talk about when you visit us is the work that you do with salamanders, and and one of them is the Bucket Brigade. So if you would kind of give us an idea, a reminder of what the Bucket Brigade is and and how it works. Okay. It began with spotted salamanders on the the, um, trace, uh, as with... um uh, it's, these are terrestrial species that breed in seasonally wet areas. So when the leaves fall and rainfall increases in the winter, that's good weather for salamanders, if not for us. Uh, and they move from upland habitats, the spots in the marble salamanders cross. If, they, if there's a road between them and the breeding habitat, they cross the road, in this case the trace, um, meet in the basins either dry when the marble salamanders move in or wet when the spots move in. Uh, mate and everyone heads back. The females lay eggs and the um, uh, the males head back home. If it's, it's a female marble salamander, she waits until it rains and then she leaves. In this case, they may this year as dry as it was in the fall, they may not have had much of much success. But right now the ponds are filling and the spotted salamanders begin to move across. On the 11th, uh, I was out there with my wife Deb at, uh, at Millsaps, um, and the actually the trace uh, head of uh, the resource person for the National Trace, Deanna Bench, was with us as well. And we experienced more wind than I've ever seen on the trace 
the wind, the rain was coming in horizontal, but we had a number of beautiful male spots moving moving home. The other um, species we work with out there mainly is the Webster salamander, which was this is a it's a totally terrestrial. It was not thought to migrate at all because it doesn't have to go to a pond. They they breed underground, lay their eggs there. But these guys, we it's a long story. I won't tell it all here, but we have determined they do migrate. And since we began this in 2012, 2013, with silt fences, we put along the trace right below the interstate. We've uh, we have now six six years of data on those. Dev and I published this last year, the first in what would be several papers on migration. We started with 200, getting as far they move from an outcrop 80, 80 or so yards west of the trace. They move out toward the trace, many across the trace. We pick them up at the fence there. The first year we got 200 on the on the west fence in the fall, and then on the return migration to the rock outcrop on the east fence. Two years ago, we got 1,300. Uh, so the numbers are going up uh, uh, so far. So that was neat both ways. That's some busy nights. Uh, we may move 500 at night with volunteers picking them up the fence and photographing each and the camera across. As I told uh, Libby earlier today, I checked my Webster's file, photo file on my, um, my thumb drive. I have... 58,000 pictures wow. taken of those guys during these events. So this is so we can sex them. We've marked them. We can we can discern whether we've marked one or not there. So it's been really well, interesting. They're very photogenic, too. <laughs> I have a couple up on my Facebook page. The mama and, and babies and the mother tending the eggs. and Yeah, they're, they're cute little guys. That's the greens. We don't have any pictures of those yet. No, they're photogenic, but no one's ever seen the animals going. Now, are these green? Those are greens. Oh, the Webster's go underground for the summer. No one's ever seen them. Oh, they spend they spend six okay. to seven months underground. That's a diet plan. They're not feeding them. The females lay eggs and guard them, presumably. The males are just loafing and starving. They all come up looking like POWs in the fall. Sometimes Halloween. Sometimes as a drought year, mid-November, six months without feeding. They fan out, get food resources, and go back. Um, what? All right. What are their food resources? What are they looking for? Small invertebrates, mainly. So it could be uh, columbulins, springtails, termites, things like ants, ants, small spiders, eating small stuff. And the leaf litter. So they're leaf litter animals in the fall and winter. They're winter animals. And then last, it was six last week. Deb and I were hunting these guys in Alabama two days after that, and we were getting them beneath snow in frost-laced um, Free, uh, ice-laced leaf litter. They're on top still, just beneath the leaf litter. So they're really tough. No when, lungs. When he talks about Deb, that's his My wife, his Deborah, wife Dr. who's Deborah also Mann, a biologist. No yeah. okay. So I, I guess two purposes. It's interesting to me because, again, you scoop them up in the bucket and that you, so you help them cross the road uh, to try to avoid the, the chicken reference there. But also this gives you a great opportunity to photo, research, uh, kind of get a handle on populations, that I sort of thing. I told Deb we would um, not forget to mention this. We recaptured one last month. We had marked, we injected them with a little VIE elastomer. Um, we can see it. And we can, they're also like fingerprints, they're little belly um, uh, pigment patterns. But we recaptured one last month that we marked as an adult in the 2014 2015 season. So that doesn't sound like much, but it was an adult then, so at least two years to adulthood. So that's at minimum, it's entering its, entering its sixth, sixth year. Um, these are little guys, three inch long animals. Um, no one knows how long they live. This is the, right now the Methuselah of the Webster salamander. 
We need to take a quick break. When we get back, we will continue talking with our guest today. He's Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, talking about his work with salamanders. So if you have a question for Tom, if you have a pet question, or if you'd like to share a recent brush with wildlife, give us a call. We've got some open phone lines at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. We'll be back with more after this. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with Tom Mann from the Museum of Natural Science, uh, talking about the work that he does with salamanders. So if you have a salamander question, want to know more about those little creatures, or a pet question for Dr. Major, or as we say, a brush with wildlife, a question about wildlife, uh, you can give us a call because right now phone lines are open. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can always send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, uh, Tom, let's maybe do some Salamander 101. Um, and forgive my ignorance here, and I, I always sometimes hesitate to ask questions because I might sound really dumb, but <laughs> is a salamander, is it a reptile or an amphibian? Amphibians. Okay. I knew it wasn't a mammal, so I, I could eliminate that. So. Um, tell us a little about your, the size, uh, that sort of thing. What, how, how small are they when they're born, and, and how big do they get when they become adults? Well, it varies a lot. Okay, Our largest salamanders in Mississippi, we have two, two families with fairly large animals. The Cryptobranchidae, one species, is a hellbender in northeast Mississippi, found just in Bear Creek. Those can be pretty, pretty large. I've never seen a little guy, but the adults can be maybe a foot or two, a big one. Uh, large one, um, those are endangered. Small ones are on the end of uh, the websites we work with, with an adult three inches long, and the little guys are, you know, maybe a third of that total length. Um, so they vary quite a bit in size. We have seven families, they're very different animals. Some are totally aquatic, some like this one, total, totally terrestrial. Uh, the plethodons, the family that lacks um, the plethodontidae, uh, that lack lungs, like our little Webster's here, are our most diverse species, or diverse, diverse uh, family, I'm sorry. Uh, that means there are many different That's kinds. true throughout the southeast. <laughs> and we have the one I worked with a lot last year, the green salamander, uh, in uh, primarily at Tishomingo State Park in rock crevices uh, last summer. That was part of multi-state uh, resurvey for those guys. I think the feds are considering their status. I think ours are doing pretty well in, in the park in particular. But they live, they're totally terrestrial again, and they, uh, they breathe through wet skin, no lungs, and again. But these live deep in rock crevices in those magnificent um, Hartzell sandstone cliffs at Tishomingo State Park and some other places up there. Uh, and the females will lay the eggs and guard the, guard the eggs in those cracks for a couple of months without feeding again, and then guard the kids for another couple of weeks after that 
I, uh, Libby, I think, uh, put some uploaded some photographs to Facebook this morning, which mm-hmm. may be accessible. Those are green salamanders again, the state endangered species here. Uh, so, so with some being magnificent. terrestrial, some aquatic, I guess we do we find them in all parts of Mississippi? Yes, yes. Okay, um, and then um, so again, to describe you're talking about uh, some of them actually live underground for most of their time. What other sorts of habitats are are salamanders interested in? Well, again, the aquatic species are going to be in various sorts of. Some are riverine, some are more swampy. Uh, some like amphibians uh, that look like snakes. They aren't snakes. They have no scales. They have uh, four tiny little limbs, and they are burrowers in mucky areas. You're, not, you're mainly not going to see those, but they all pretty much want to stay moist wherever they are, uh, whether they have lungs or gills or whatever, they're going to want to stay moist. So, Typically aquatic, the sole exception to that is maybe the newt. You can see the newt out sometimes in broad daylight because it's toxic to most predators and it can be strolling abroad. It won't be out basking in the sun so much, but you you can see them in the daytime too. We have got a caller on the line, so we will say good morning to our friend Rich in Gulfport. Thanks for calling, Rich. You're on the air. Rich, are you with us? Uh, let me put you back on hold. We'll see if we can't get that worked out. Always like to hear from Rich calling in from Gulfport. Um, so um, let's see. Uh, we talked about the, the, the habitat, and, and then earlier you mentioned their diet is, uh, as you were saying, small invertebrates, uh, ants, termites, that, that sort of thing. That was our little webster. So those okay. are small. The bigger you are, the larger the critter you can eat. So the ambistima, the spotted salamanders, we, we help across the trace, can eat larger critters. Again, probably mainly invertebrates, but be larger invertebrates, earthworms, things like that. Um, now, I've, one time in a rainstorm, saw it in my backyard um, a big amphium, generally aquatic, poking its head down a crawfish burrow and extracting a crawfish. So wow. that's, they can bite hard. They can be like <laughs> as can, big as your arm, too. Yeah. Those are big, big salamanders. And uh, you you came prepared with some visual aids for us today, uh, as we talked earlier about your your bucket brigade. And it looks like you're you're ready to go. So tell us uh, you, what you've got on there, and kind of I guess you've got a reflective vest so that uh, you know you can be seen, I guess, on the trace. For, uh, the the nice folks at the trace, first off, uh, back in 2010 or so, installed uh, wildlife crossings. I wanted I wanted salmon crossing signs. They put up wildlife crossing signs, and on a wet night, I can I have a magic key. I can turn those into the bottom of the light. And the speed limit drops, hypothetically, from 50 to 35. We don't see that much, but that's mainly to keep the volunteers safer when they're shuttling animals across the road. Uh, we tr- try to stay out of the road until an animal's there, and even then you're not supposed to dash in front of a car. The safety is paramount. Um, so we wear that. We have these reflective vests. I have my camera in the pocket. I've got my salamander mammogram thing here somewhere. Where is it? Here. I photograph them. At least the webster's in here, ventral side up, so I can uh, assess sex, size, class, reproductive condition. Um, it's quite an operation. On a busy night, when we're handling 500 animals in a fence, it's really busy. So you, do night. you try to photograph every one? Uh, the uh, the webster's, yes. We're looking for them. But sometimes it's – we had uh, – who was it? Uh, we had uh, some helpers out from the museum one night last – or two years ago. Um, Caitlin Cross. Goodness, we had – that was an incredible night. We had 500 in less than half a night. And that, at that point, we're photographing them through bags collectively <laughs> looking for – and we got marked animals that way. You can see the little mark. But uh, with the others, uh, mainly with the um, the big spotted salamanders and the marbles, we just shunt them into the scoop and carry them across in the direction of the traveling. So, 
And that's, again, you've got, uh, looks like a little kind of a Tupperware container, a small bucket. It's marked, it's salamander, so they know it's safe. Okay. You show them that, they go right in. <laughs> And so we have, we have, ref- we have, ref- on there, they we have reflective umbrellas, uh, courtesy of the Tracy Inn as well. So it's, uh, they want us to be safe. All right. Uh, we've got another caller on the line. So this time we're going to talk to uh, Tiffany in Jackson. Good morning, Tiffany. You're on the air. Good, good morning. Go ahead. Um, I was wondering, what are those like little clear lizards that you can see through? I, geckos. Those are geckos. Mediterranean okay. geckos. They're, they're pretty common down here in, in the deep south, from what I see. Is that correct? Yes, and they're they're non-native. Uh, they're what I call edificarian. You see them around buildings. In a winter like this, if they're an outbuilding, like in a storage shed outside, they're dead in the spring. It's just too cold, so they have to be around a building with with a heat source. Why are they clear? Or why can you? Well, you know, I can't. I never. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I was, haven't thought about that. <laughs> That's the way they're made. But yeah. if you, but noticing that, we, my wife and I, uh, we have no TVs, and we can watch them on the windows at night, the kitchen window, and you can actually assess, you can sex them easily that way, and you can see eggs in the female. So, all right, that's oh, it. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your call, Tiffany. We've got some open phone lines on Creature Comforts if you'd like to call in today. Dr. Major's back with us, so if you have a pet question, he's ready to help you. We're talking with Tom Mann about salamanders today, and also we always look for your brushes with wildlife. So give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. So, uh, Kevin, you asked about the migrations again. We, um, Deb and I put up those, those of you that regularly drive the trace at night south of I 20, well, just below Lindsay Creek, this is about a mile south of the interstate. You will have had to have seen those 90 yard silt fences both sides of the road. Those are there to intercept animals coming east. Heading east in the fall and then west again in the spring, and we're trying. What we do is intercept them at the fences and carry them across. If we're out there, if we're not, they can hop across the fences. But they climb the fences and leap on the top, cross the road. But uh, so we try to minimize mortality to, to traffic. We try to be out there in wet places, at least early in the night, wet phases. So, is there actually a small green gecko? Uh, the, I mean, you know, we think of the the insurance salesman there but is there really a gecko that looks like that oh i have no okay. i'm gonna say probably so but i have no idea all right so yeah and i think what he has an australian accent doesn't he or is that um new zealand but that's i've assumed that that's where you find that gecko but i don't know well, there I'm, may not be that much science you, behind if it. you look the, if you, there's a book called the small majority small majority that has beautiful pictures of small critters spiders insects lizards and i think if you can imagine it and what a lizard might look like, I think you could probably find it in that book. They're really incredible. Although I believe there is a raging debate online about whether his accent is Australian or possibly English, or and I'm wondering oh. if uh, they don't do that on purpose. But uh, So has a salamander ever offered to sell you insurance? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk no, about... The, the only lizards do <laughs> <Okay>. that. <laughs> so let's help us out there again, too. So, uh, you know, I think maybe people confuse some of these creatures that might look similar. So if you could maybe tell us the difference between geckos, salamanders, lizards. Geckos are lizards. Okay. Mm-hmm. Try again. There we go. That so tell me the difference between lizards have scales. Some folks confuse the lizards, the, the shiny-looking skinks they see in the daytime with salamanders because they don't see the scales. They have small scales and they're shiny. But in general, if it's out in the daytime, it's a lizard. Uh, 
And again, you got the geckos that break that rule, and they're out at night, and that's a lizard too. They're climbing. Um, but they, but all lizards have scales. All right. But they, but all the general, I mean, the general rules about four limbs, two limbs, well, all that stuff you can find an exception. <laughs> and um, so the the uh, salamanders are cold blooded animals, and I guess maybe a lot of people think that during the winter. They should be tucked away somewhere hibernating. So is this a little bit unusual? No. I mean, again, we have a whole suite. We have we have winter active animals and summer active animals. The ones that we work with at the trace are primarily winter active, fall, winter, spring. And again, uh, when the leaves drop, uh, the evapo- evapotranspiration rate, that is trees pulling water up from the ground through their, through their roots and, and then um, evaporating from the leaves, that ceases. So the ground, if it's raining at all, the ground gets more moist. And for these critters that have no lungs, that's perfect. They can stay moist without, um, there's there's no stress there. And we think, in fact, Deb and I, we think we're seeing this year a drop-off in the the hatchlings from last year because of that extended drought in the fall. We just are not seeing as many little guys as we usually do. And that may be a fact. We don't know that, but it's just extended drought. Because, again, they're not feeding for six, maybe seven months. Little guys are not even fed at all. They're underground hatched, and then they're going to come up as their yolk reserves are being de- 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 depleted. It, we don't, it may be a factor. You know, a common sense thing about the active in the winter, when you think about something that's got to stay moist, you don't want to be out in the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, you're going to dry out and die. And so these, they they got to be moist, the, and that's more important than the temperature. The mole salamanders are breeding in places, in, in ephemeral pools, places they either flood when creeks flood or they just gather rainwater and flood. But that you don't see that in the summer. So that's that's a winter uh, phenomenon. That's what they're exploiting when they go down to Tom, breed. at what age, what age do they start to migrate? Oh, all these, uh, the, our little Webster's here, all age classes move. They all move, which is neat. They all move away from the outcrop. They spend the summer in, then they move back. So no one had any idea about that. Uh, with the spotted salamanders and the marble salamanders, the big ones that we see out there a lot, uh, they're moving again as soon as the eggs hatch and the kids become um, aquatic larvae for a couple of months. When they shed those gills and leave the ponds, they're migrating. That may be a multi-year thing. Then i got to come back that first year. They may be moving on the move and radiating out for years until they reach adulthood, three, four, five, six, ten years, and then come back to where they were spawned. And so I guess it's instinctual. Is there something in the environment that sort of cues this activity to begin? I mean, would it vary if it's, say, a drier or a wetter year? Would that somehow alter slightly the, the, the time frame? All right, frame? The, that's going to – with the Websters, again, we see movement at those fences with one or, more animals, one or more animals hitting a fence probably from 44 to 55 nights in most seasons. That's counting in and outbound. Uh, they will move in on wet leaves. If it's just – if the mist wets the top of the leaves, they'll come up from the wet ground – through the dry leaves, hit the hit the um, the salamander highway on top on the mist and go, and they'll climb the fences when they're rain moistened or mist moistened. Uh, the and the mole salamanders, the spots and the marbles are more picky. They really would like rainfall, and they mainly move best when it's raining. And they will. Um, that's the key. So it's it's weather mediated. Okay. And temperature. Uh, We need to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guest, Tom Mann, from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Plus, we've got a couple of callers on the line. We'll get to Mikey's call and Karen's call after we come back from this break. There's still time for you to call in as well. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. Call us at 1-877-672-7464. We'll be back with more after this. 
If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with Tom Mann from the Museum of Natural Science about his work with salamanders. Got some open phone lines. If you have a question about salamanders, maybe you want to tell us about a brush with wildlife, or if you have a pet question, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. Let's start by talking to Willie, who's called in from Louisiana this morning. Go ahead, Willie. Yeah, okay. We, I, in Louisiana, we have a problem with the only light colored lizard. They love to be around light. I think they catch bugs and wreck it. It's hard to get rid of them. What do you have to put down for them? Or do you, could it be something you have to put down for them or what? Uh, the first question is why do you need to get rid of them? Uh, my wife very scared of I was afraid that was <laughs> I work with some people like that as well. You know, I'm here to open windows. <laughs> if I can make people less fearful about things that pose them no threat, I would do that. Right. These are these are eating things that might be a problem for you. They might eat some mosquitoes or eating moths. Uh, they might eat little roaches, more importantly. But they really, they pose no threat at all. Um, so, okay. I, I'm, uh, again, if there's something you could put out that would kill them, these are vertebrates. These are lizards. They're vertebrates like you. Anything you might put out that might be toxic to them might be toxic to you. So <laughs> I would, I would. Uh, <laughs> yeah, try to think of think of them as the roach patrol. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's what, that's what, what yeah. we do at our house. We yeah. put them on our house for that reason, mm-hmm. so they can eat little roaches, not big ones, but they can get the little guys. So. Uh, that's all I can offer you. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Willie, thanks for calling. Yeah, I think that's right. For folks that are a little squeamish about that, because we get that a lot of when we talk about the various creatures and, and people are kind of afraid of them, and then they say, well, they eat mosquitoes or roaches or that sort of thing. And whenever I hear that, I'm like, bring them on. <laughs> Let's go next to uh, Mikey in Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. Hey, good morning. I'd like to ask my second question first, but I do have a question for Dr. Majors, please. Um, uh, the salamander thing, um, uh, as the gentleman was saying, there are, at uh, one of my relatives' properties that, that's co-owned, there is a colony, of, and they really are absolutely beautiful to look at through the window. Of course, now the window is not all that... <laughs> that magnificent you know because they're there they're white bellied uh they are they are have of course the suction fingers and they are anywhere from very small to uh, a bit larger than an anole if i'm saying that word right uh and uh they come and go uh, there's a banana tree planted under this window the uh the topography is that it's a quite a high elevation descending rapidly to a canal. Um, are these the ones that you're talking about as being marble? No, no. These are, Medi- those are Mediterranean geckos. Those are the lizards, not the salamanders. Those are the lizards. Yeah. They're out at night only. But thank you for that beautiful description, too, of them. Oh, well, They're fun to watch, aren't the they? Fe- the, fem- yeah. the females, unlike some lizards, we actually most of our lizards, are laying hard-shelled eggs. All our lizards, I think. These are laying hard-shelled eggs up in, they may be up in your soffits, and they may even have communal nests. Um, 
Oh, so they're descending rather than ascending uh, from the soil. Uh, correct. Oh, Probably, okay. yes. Okay, but they don't hurt anything. No, uh, unless you're a little roach. Yeah. <laughs> or a little moth. That's a big help here. <laughs> um, uh, okay, and Dr. Troy, I have another question, um, and this is... Well, it would be much more mundane, except that it's all mundane, isn't it? Because it's my world. Um, my dog, my little guy, who is uh, like your JW, half uh, half Chihuahua, shaggy, little shaggy dog story, um, uh, cute as he can be. Everybody falls in love with him and just looking at him. And I've been gradually learning, since I found the right clippers to trim back their nails. They're overly, overly long nails. Um, he has a sister that's half Chihuahua also. Um, and I trimmed his, I finally got to where I could trim his back nails a little bit the other day. And he didn't cry, but I did because when I looked down on my leg where I just trimmed his nails, even though I had the nail guard thing on, um, he, he was bleeding. Right. Um, I, I put some alcohol on it um, you know, not alcohol, ethyl, but the, you know, stuff that you can drink alcohol on it. And like I said, he never cried, but it's breaking my heart. What do I do to make sure that I'm not doing something wrong? I think the best thing, uh, of course, what color is nails? Can you tell? Are they black? Are they white? They're both. Okay. They are. Yeah. It's a striation. They're right. whiter underneath and darker over. Right. And we, I, I do try to pay very close attention to that. But like I said, this is, you know, I finally got them to where I could get the front nails right. to where they're. What my suggestion is this: since you've got the nail clippers, just take a tiny bit off every week, okay? And don't worry about getting too close. What happens if you take a little bit off? That quick will grow back. Uh, toward the foot, in other words, not toward the end of the nail, but, but toward the base of the nail. And I think that would be perfectly fine to do that. A lot of dogs hesitate to have their nails clipped, and it's hard to do it by yourself because they'll jump. They have an uncanny ability to jump just as you're ready to cut. So just take a little bit off every week, and I think you'll be fine with that. You can also, if you have a Dremel, you can also take the Dremel and smooth those up with the Dremel. Just take it easy. I realize he's got some long hair. Don't want to get that caught in the Dremel. But if you can take that and just kind of smooth those nails down, it might be better than trying to clip them. Okay? All right, uh, Mikey, thanks for the call. And also I would say instead of uh, putting the alcohol on the dog's paws, just put it in his bowl and let him have a shot or two. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. Karen has called in from Olive Branch with a question for us. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. I have a mixed breed female who's about 15 years old and 40 pounds. She does have arthritis. Her right front leg is starting to get kind of bow-legged at the elbow. Is that a problem? Okay. Is she overweight? No. Okay. The good. Uh, it's good uh, from the standpoint of the arthritis not to be overweight. Uh, if it's bowing severely, it may be one of those things that could benefit from a brace or something like that. If she's moving around fine, I think I, are you giving her any medication at all for the arthritis? No, just supposedly there's glucosamine right. in her food. Right. And that's, that's good to be doing that. But, uh, unless she's had an injury and it's uh -huh. just that one leg, I suspect she's going to be okay. She may 
put more weight on the opposite side because of that, but I think it's because of the arthritis that she's doing that. Okay, okay. and she does get around pretty well. Right. Just Thank make you. sure she doesn't gain too much weight. And it sounds like if she's 15 and not overweight right now that you're doing good, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for the call, Karen. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got some open phone lines if you'd like to call in today at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. We're visiting today with Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Tom is telling us about the work he does with salamanders in Mississippi. Dr. Majors here ready to answer some pet questions as well. So, Tom, I think we've talked about a couple of the, the species, the, the Webster that you uh, researched. We've talked about the spotted and the marbled. What about the mud puppy salamander? Mud is, puppies. That's one I've done nothing with at all. That's the family Nectaridae. We have um, several species of those as well. Those are riverine. Uh, you can get them in leaf packs in smaller areas too, but, again, I have no, I have no work experience with those. Uh, a woman that has helped me out um, a good deal of the trace, Jen Lamb, who actually added a new uh, – or she – changed the name of one of our species last year, um, went from the uh, southern uh, uh, Desmog to uh, Valentine's southern Desmog. Uh, she has worked with those and is working with those now. She's teaching it. Uh, she was a student at Southern. Now she's got a PhD. She's teaching in Louisiana, but she's been great. But she's a good, if one wants to Google uh, mud puppies, she's a good person to um, and how, why, information. Why was, why was the name change necessary? Uh, it was uh, not what it was thought to be. Aha. Uh-huh. So they found out more about it. Yep, so yep, yep, as far yep. as uh, what other things it's related yeah, yeah. to. Yeah, okay. All yeah. right. It's genealogy. They did a lot time. of gen- yeah. genetic stuff. They did skull morphology. A really interesting um, paper. She did a lot of work with those. So um, tell us about the uh, the courtship uh, events at the, at these breeding pools. Anything interesting to watch? All right. You know, that's an, it's interesting you bring that up. There, I work with some people uh, who are not biologist who do not, or as a gentleman called earlier on about the skinks, are, are not fond of, of the squamate life form or frogs or whatever. But if you tell them more about what's going on, they become engaged. And one, I'm not going to name names, but I talked to one of those people last week who was not excited as I was by the um, spotted salamander picture, the ones we got last week. But when I told her about what I'm about to tell you, she got excited. So the males, the males usually show up at the ponds first. Uh, and they will, there's a reproductive dance they do. They'll lace, they put spermatophores, uh, little gelatinous capsules of sperm in them on the bottom of the pool, and they will, they do these little dances, and they compete for attention to females, trying to guide the females over those, and then they will, the females, if they choose to do so, will pick those up with a cloaca lip. So there's no in, inter, intromission with, with these salamanders. If it's a volitional, the female decides, yes, I'll have that one or not. Now, the males may superimpose, there are little spermatophore packets upon those of a, a previous male attempting to get an edge in the competition that way. But if you go out to the ponds after a night of, uh, what am I going to call this? Well, reproductive behavior. You can see little patches, maybe a meter or two wide, with these little gelatinous, oh, like Hershey's Kisses size, a little bit less than that. Uh, clear, little jelly, firm little jelly um, spermatophore uh, packets, and there may be a little sperm tip on the top of those. The female pinches that off. And... Uh, and is thus fertilized. And it, so there's a reproductive dance, and all of these guys have their own particular courtship rituals. We no one's ever seen this with Webster salamander. They have with with distal related uh, congeners, same genus species, and they can involve nipping, and it can involve rubbing, all sorts of things. But it's uh, it's interesting with the little 
dances. So it would be akin maybe to... And in fact, a, well, mm-hmm. let me... Uh, there's a... Um, <laughs> there's a... Uh, I, I'm in regular touch with folks that do similar things in other places, one of which is home in Alabama. And this weekend, they will have their Salamander Festival. They have folks that, like we do, they move salamanders across the road, spots. And part of the little brochure has um, an elaborate, uh, not quite a caricature, but they have, it looks like people with long tails and, and with big spots on them, kind of flamenco dancing. I have been to this festival. It's re- <laughs> they have a big crowd. It's really neat thing to do. They have showing, showing uh, you know, touch things, things like that. But right. it's a Homewood Salamander Festival. So All right. great people. You know, p- uh, single men ought to go there, and maybe they could pick up some tips, and the next time they're at mm-hmm. a singles bar, they could break out one of these dances and, and see if it works for humans as well. <laughs> Okay. We've got some callers on the line to get to. Uh, let's start again in state line. Kelly has called in this morning. Good morning, Kelly. Go ahead. Yeah, I was wondering if y'all could recommend a good field guide for salamanders in this area. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, the Peterson Field Guide to Reptiles and Amphibians was just revised the year before last, and that's probably your best general guide. There's some prettier books. Um, Salamanders of the Southeast uh, with wonderful pictures, but the maps aren't as good. The maps in this one are better. I help with those. Bob Jones at the museum help help with those. It's the best general. Now, the flaw in this book is that they don't have pictures of Webster salamanders because they supposedly look just like the zigzag salamander, the southern zigzag salamander, which we also have in northeast Mississippi. Now, my wife and I have been working on this for years. Some of the 58,000 pictures I talked about have to do with distinguishing those and we're working on a paper to demonstrate that we can do that uh, but anyway this is the peterson field guide i think is the best uh, general work all right uh, roger, roger conant's name is still on there yep have, have in fact the last guy that oh you got a no i was just story? gonna say i've got yeah a fanny cook story she she used you to collect for roger conant he would write to her and tell her what he wanted from the southeast, and she'd go collect. And they missed Webster's, but the yes, last the last guy to review it. the last guy to redo this was uh, Dr. Robert Powell, and he talked to Bob and I at the museum a good bit, and he said he was glad that his research animals didn't climb fences like mine. I said, "What was your research animal?" He said, "Spotted salamanders," and I sent him a picture of a little spot crossing <laughs> the fence. So if you if you <laughs> a lot a lot goes on. <laughs> Maybe he didn't build his fence out of the right material. <laughs> Uh, next up, we've got uh, Crystal and Clinton. Good morning, Crystal. Go ahead. Hey there. Um, first, I just wanted to thank Dr. Major. Seven years ago, I adopted a Belgian Malinois mix that y'all called Medea from your clinic that you had saved. And we call her Sally now, but um, she's our princess. So thank you. Well, you're most um, welcome. And then also, um, we're in the woods in Clinton, and... There are these, what I think are salamanders, with really kind of brownish colored with really bright blue um, streaks on their tails. But then we also have these huge, what I think are geckos, um, huge, I mean, like bigger than my, my hand lizards that climb up the trees and have skin or scales that look kind of like the tree bark. They look like miniature dinosaurs and i don't know if they're friendly or i'm assuming so but if you have any input on on those two lizards okay the uh the last one we referred to those are our, uh fence swifts fence lizards fence swifts um those are uh, again that's a lizard um i have a few in my yard those are the really the males in breeding season in the summer 
had this bright blue. I mean, it's just an incredible hyacinth blue under the throat and belly. They're really, they're really, there's no blue like that out there except those guys. It's really incredible. The uh, mm-hmm. other little blue tail guys you refer to are one of several, or it could be several species of skinks. And the younger, the younger animals of which may have the little blue tail on them, but those are lizards, fine-scale lizards. And those are strictly diurnal, daytime. Um, so it's one of several. Probably It's probably five-line skinks. It could be broad-headed skinks, uh, one of those two probably. The babies of the broad-headed. Oh, they're just beautiful. They're just beautiful. And, some, and those are not salamanders. But they, uh, some people have okay. phobias, but they're just beautiful. It's just an incredible color. One thing about these uh, skinks uh, with the blue tail, I can't differentiate but there is some toxicity with the stage and we see cats especially they can't resist it it's just like a treat running across the ground (laughs) and they will literally eat that and it can cause some disorientation usually uh, vestibular the cat may hold its head sideways Uh, it may roll if it's severe in other words tumble like severe vertigo, so so keep your cat indoors. The, right, that was, that's 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 a good point. That was, absolutely, but uh, well, we do we have, see we don't have any cats thanks to our three dogs. So. Right, the <laughs> dogs usually leave those alone. Okay, but we have seen uh, where the toxicity affects the cats, and uh, it certainly is possible, and it is in the literature. It's not just my my thinking that one up. All right, Crystal, thanks for your call. Let's move on. Next, we've got uh, Joe in Belzona. Good morning, Joe. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, um, I picked up this little rescue dog. He's about 12 weeks old, and uh, I've taken him to the vet. And uh, one of the things that he has is sarcoptic mange. Yes. And and I was told by the vet that if I just uh, administered routine hygiene that I wouldn't get them. But obviously I didn't because I did get them. Well. Uh, and... Uh, I was wondering, I have medication for it, but I, is he going to just keep infecting me, or are we going to keep okay. infecting each other? Okay. And first, how do I, first how of do all, I deal with it around the house? <laughs> first of all, what are you treating the puppy with? Uh, he gave me a shampoo uh, that says it has myconahex plus T-R-I-Z, okay. and I bathe him with that every three days. Okay. I'm not trying to change the diagnosis or anything, certainly without seeing the puppy. You need something that's going to kill those mites. Uh, usually they're fairly easy to kill. One thing that we use that's off-label, and uh, it's called Brevecto, uh, which is effective against fleas and ticks the last three months, and we have used it in the younger dogs, and it does help to clear that up. Now, uh, Could you for- spell that for me? B-R-A-V-E-C-T-O, Revecto. As I said, it's off-label. The other thing would be a good perethrin uh, shampoo uh, that would help. These are usually surface mites. It takes a little while to clear it up, and they are, in general, self-limiting in people. So you might want to give your physician or family doctor a call and see what he recommends for that. But usually in... uh, it, it occurs because you're holding the puppy. Uh, men, we see it around the uh, waistline, uh, women, right. bra, bra line and uh, waistline, because you're holding right. the pet up close. So I would avoid that. But uh, I think probably the best thing would be some sort of perethrin type uh, or permethrin uh, insecticide, mm-hmm. which should help kill that. 
other things that are used called ivermectin. But uh, if you've if you've had it enough where you've got it, you need to discuss that with your veterinarian and possibly with your family doctor. Okay. 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 Good luck to you. Thank, Thank you. you. I appreciate it. Clothes washing and stuff like that. Do I need to just that helps? Need to wash that that everything do, all the yes, time. Yes, that does help. Okay. Right. All right. Okay. Thanks for your call, Joe. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Got a couple of minutes left in the show. So, Tom, what uh, what is the value of studying species like uh, salamanders, do you think? Ooh, <laughs> like, like incurring disease? <laughs> you know, the, my pat answer is these all have their intrinsic worth. They're just interesting. In the case of these little guys at the Trace we've been working with, we've learned that they're tied to those rock eye crops. If you look, and these are forest animals. This, I'm just picking the one as an example. They're tied to rock eye crops. It's got to have rock to get underground for that summer. It's not going to survive summer without that. These guys, they don't live in stump holes anymore. And maybe back in the um, in the ice ages they could. Maybe they could get by with going underground in a stump hole. But not now. Now they're tied to these eye crops, deep eye crops. They move out from those to the forest and back into the eye crops. They've probably been doing this at this site since mammoths walked out there, since the ice ages. And think about that. Most of us didn't cross the pond <laughs> until 500 years ago, and that's just our ancestors. These guys have been living on this landscape doing their little thing, as of all these other little guys that live in this particular habitat or that, doing these things for millions of years. In fact, my genetic colleague, geneticist colleague, Sheena Feist at the museum, she's again working with Deb and I on, on myriad Webster's uh, projects, tells me that the, the, the same species that occurs were, uh, up in Legion State Park may have last, last had a common ancestor with the ones we worked with at the Trace six million years ago. That's just, that's an educated guess. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. Our species had not evolved. Um, and we hadn't come down to the trees at that point. <laughs> These guys have been living on their landscape before we invented property lines and courthouses and store records. And that's true of all these little creatures out there. They have their own space. They do their own thing, and they're, they're part of the great, the whole. I, they just have their own intrinsic worth. That's all I can tell And they eat termites. All right. <laughs> that's all I can tell you. <laughs> so if someone has been listening this morning, wants, uh, is interested, and maybe would like to help uh, become a volunteer in some of the, the work that you do, what should they do? They can call me at the museum, uh, 601-576-6048. If they're, you know, they could go on, folks that have Google can Google my name, uh, Tom Mann and Deborah Mann, in migrating Webster salamanders. And they can see our paper online and see what we've been doing. There's pictures, and they may, they can get in touch. And if um, they forget all that, animals. At mpbonline.org. Right. If yeah, you're we interested. Have, but we have permits to do this in the trace. We do things, that we have a certain protocol, so folks should not be wandering out there trying to help out at night. They need to get in touch with us first. But I, we do need, we need folks that are not going to be surprised to find. Wind and rain and lightning <laughs> on the on the nights that we work out there and we don't. <laughs> oh, but I thought. <laughs> okay. All right, that's going to wrap us up Thank for today. You. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding is provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating more than twenty years of conserving Mississippi's lands, waters, and wildlife, and from contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman and our call screener is Michelle McAdoo. So for Libby Hartfield. Dr. Troy Major and our guest Tom Mann. I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned up next at 10. It's MPB's Season Pass. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.